Welcome back to Voices from Healthcare. Every other week, I seek to paint healthcare in vivid color as I learn more about the human side of medicine. In this episode of Voices from Healthcare. When I was a medical student and I would go to the hospital to help round, I think the, one of the most impactful experiences I had um, was actually in an ICU setting. And it was a patient that ultimately <clears throat> had a cardiac rest in the field, came to the ICU, had to be under hypothermic protocol, um, a lot of interventions to keep his heart moving ultimately and to keep him hemodynamically stable. So he had lines, he had lots of um, vasopressors, lots of inotropes, and uh, just learning that whole process in an ICU setting. And I think the thing that was really impactful for me was that as a medical student, I had the opportunity to help this patient in such a critical portion of his life. Hmm. Even though he didn't know who I was, even though he didn't know necessarily what impact I was having, the impact was really on his family Hmm. and having to talk with his wife about end of care discussions and just life in general and what it means to be human and to hurt and to feel all the while we're trying to stamp out disease. And that's that's a tough place to be. And um, as a medical student, it really opened my eyes to, this is God's calling in my life. He has given me a voice. He's given me compassion and empathy to help people in a place of need. And I knew in that moment that I was in the place I needed to be. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast. Dr. Little is an anesthesiologist working at Good Samaritan Hospital in Cincinnati. He received his medical degree from Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine. You know, I still remember when I was young and I was looking to shadow and gain shadowing experience, and Dr. Little was one of the first medical professionals that I reached out to. Dr. Little embodies a patient-first philosophy of medicine and really pursues excellence in his job, from the anesthesia surgery plans to just being a comforting presence to patients prior to the OR. It's such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Little. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to start off with uh, the beginnings. You know, everyone has a formative moment in medicine and everyone has those uh, key events as you're going through your education, as you're learning and progressing and and finding out exactly where you are um, in medicine and your love for it. How did you first fall in love with the practice of medicine. Yeah, it's it's really kind of a long journey, honestly, Jonathan. So I was growing up in a small rural town in southeast Claremont County here in Cincinnati. I just knew myself and knew that I loved to take care of people. And I always had that sort of emotional side of me that wanted to make people feel that they're loved and cared for. And uh, I've always had that since I was a child. And I also loved science. So going through high school and college, even pursued chemistry as as actually my first love. Um, I just loved that idea of thinking about analytical problems and also how ultimately chemicals come together and cause reactions and a cause and effect. I really liked the lab and uh, ultimately I pursued a chemistry degree and got out and worked as a chemist in the industry for a couple years and really felt like I was missing that that people piece of uh, being able to 
really see a need in someone and help them. I didn't know how God was going to shape that in my heart or in my life. Decided to do exactly what you did, Jonathan, which was shadow somebody in medicine. And I shadowed a couple primary care physicians, Dr. Holliday, and, and uh, just really found that there was just a special bond between the physician and a patient. And there was so much mental capacity and differential diagnosis and treatment that went into taking care of people, but also making them feeling comfortable with treatments and how you're going to help them. And it was something I was really interested in. So I think my, ultimately my fall in love with practice medicine began when I was, you know, a young kid, but it took me a really long time to get to that point. That's awesome how you're talking about that physician-patient relationship and how that's so important. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. I know in your education that you decided to pursue a DO. Could you talk a little bit about the distinction between an MD and DO? I know there's always always talk about the difference. So Yeah, yeah. So um, MDs are allopathic uh, medicine versus DOs, which are osteopathic medicine. And, and ultimately, it's two different avenues to get to the same place, which is being a physician, taking care of patients. Um, the reason why I pursued being an osteopath is I really appreciated the philosophy of looking at a patient from a holistic point of view. Right. That's the spiritual, that's the emotional, that's the family structure, that's the patient themselves. There's a lot that goes into who we are as people and that can also affect disease. It can also affect treatments and I really, really, really appreciated that holistic approach um, to medicine. <clears throat> and I found once I actually went into medical school in uh, Kansas City University of Medicine that that was really, really something that was emphasized. And it wasn't something that we just talked about, it was something that we applied. It was something that we did on a daily basis. I even have a fellow colleague that works with me at Good Sam that he'll go in and actually do OMT on uh, post-cardiac patients as an anesthesiologist. And I just wow. <laughs> find that like so profound that those types of remedies um, and differential approaches of how you look at a patient as a whole person um, can really, really benefit you. And I. That's why I pursued being an osteopath, and I felt like it's really, really helped my practice in seeing the patient as a whole. Hmm. That's great. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the, your educational journey and that confirmation on your career path and how that's built upon formative experiences. Could you share for us a moment when you thought to yourself, wow, I love medicine, when you were <laughs> very, very happy um, of where you are or, or a story or, or a moment where you were just very glad that you had chosen that path? Yeah, I think there has been several of those. Um, when I was a medical student and I would go to the hospital to help around, I think the, one of the most impactful experiences I had um, was actually in an ICU setting. And it was a patient that ultimately <clears throat> had a cardiac arrest in the field, came to the ICU, had to be under hypothermic protocol, um, a lot of interventions to keep his heart moving ultimately and to keep him hemodynamically stable. So he had lines, he had lots of um, vasopressors, lots of inotropes, and uh, just learning that whole process in an ICU setting. And I think the thing that was really impactful for me was that as a medical student, I had the opportunity to help this patient in such a critical portion of his life. Hmm. Even though he didn't know who I was, even though he didn't know necessarily what impact I was having, the impact was really on his family hmm. and having to yeah. talk with his wife about end-of-care discussions 
and just life in general and what it means to be human and to hurt and to feel all the while we're trying to stamp out disease. And that's a, that's a tough place to be. And um, as a medical student, it really opened my eyes to, this is God's calling in my life. He has given me a voice. He's given me compassion and empathy to help people in a place of need. And I knew in that moment that I was in the place I needed to be. Hmm. In terms of anesthesia, I think I had those moments so many times in residency. You know, on your bad days, on your good days, there's always something bringing you back to why this is important, why this is something that's really from inside of me. And I think most of the times I saw that was when I could provide a service that nobody else could provide, <clears throat> whether that's a procedure or whether that was help stamp out post-op pain with a nerve block or whether that was an epidural on OB. Um, I think there was just so many times where I could see <clears throat> how God used my whole life story to help a patient in need, whether that's delivering a baby into life, getting through a normal elective surgery. I, I kind of see that on a daily basis now, too. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned a little bit you took yourself back to medical school and those years in residency. Was there ever a transition period where... Uh, you learned um, in medical school, and then you, you came in to the hospital to work, um, professional career, and you thought, wow, this is different than what I had prepared for. <laughs> or was it, was it more of a natural progression? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's some of the honesty and transparency from being a medical student to then practicing as a resident to then be an attending and actually being a full-fledged physician. Coming out of medical school where you had a lot of textbook knowledge, but then that application piece oftentimes was difficult to do in a textbook setting. So that third and fourth year of medical school, yeah, absolutely. You'd walk into the hospital. I remember my first day going into the hospital for internal med rotation, doing patient rounds and, you know, just fuddling my way through things, you know, trying to do the best right, I could. Right. But every day was was a learning experience and I took it that way where you're not gonna be perfect day one, you're probably not gonna be perfect on day 10 and even 10 years into practice, there's still things that you can learn. And I think that's the beauty of medicine is there's, there's just this introspection and this natural ability to want to know things that you don't know hmm. and to find those answers through literature and um, reading. And I, I love that constant lifetime curiosity <clears throat> of being faced with a problem that you necessarily don't know the exact answer to and finding out what that is. That's the practice of medicine. I know sometimes there can be that difference uh, between the textbook knowledge and then actually meeting the patient face-to-face -face and things that you experience in the hospital, uh, real life settings you don't learn in a textbook and mm. I can't teach you. Absolutely. Um, patients are, are real people with unique stories and and that's something that you really have to experience as you get in. So that's really good to know. Mm -hmm. Every profession within the medical field, it's been, it's been said, has a type of personality. When you think of an anesthesiologist, what kind, of, what kind of comes to mind there? Yeah, yeah. I think an anesthesiologist has to have that natural curiosity for cause and effect. Um, I think they have to have a strong understanding of pharmacology. Um, they also have to be okay with not being in the limelight at times. Um, right. <laughs> I always say that an anesthesiologist is like a, 
an offensive lineman, if your name's called, it's probably a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> Just because typically people don't know what you do. Right, you know, right. And you do have a valuable part of the team, and you do have such a, an amazing service to people, you know, keeping their cardiopulmonary status totally intact while basically, you know, somebody's trying to do something that's not anatomical at all, whether that's surgery to you. Um, and I think that's just it's such a fascinating field. But that's the way I always see it is that personality is somebody that's usually easygoing, going with the flow, very much an attention to detail, um, that can have conversations that are multidisciplinary across all disciplines, whether that's surgical, whether that's internal medicine, um, to pathology, to pharmacist, to nursing staff. And you, I feel like you have to have, you know, you have to be a good manager of people. And what that means is ultimately showing people a mutual respect and um, <clears throat> also being able to triage problems very, very quickly. But that's the way I would describe it probably is, is the offensive lineman of the, uh, the medical field for sure. When most of us think of an anesthesiologist or someone in that role, we might think of, oh, this is fulfilled by one person. But um, I know you've shared before, there's many different types of anesthesiologists or areas that they focus on. Could you touch just a little bit about the diversity even within anesthesiology? Absolutely. Yeah. So the training is four years of medical school to get your um, doctorate degree, whether that's MD or DO. And then you go into residency for a general anesthesia, ultimately residency. And then after that, you can do a fellowship. And within fellowships, you can go a lot of different varieties within anesthesia. It can be cardiac. It can be a critical care focus for anesthesiologists. You can do pediatric anesthesia. Um, you can also do chronic pain <clears throat> um, if you want to manage pain, patients with chronic pain problems and also do a host of, of uh, procedures in an outpatient setting. Um, the other ones that you can also uh, do is cardiac anesthesia, where you actually focus on anesthesia during major cardiac procedures, both, both in the operating room and non-OR operating room um, places as well. Um, so there's a whole host, in, in addition to obstetrical anesthesia, um, so you focus typically just on um, <clears throat> OB anesthesia, which includes laboring patients, includes patients having C-sections and also managing their comorbid conditions prior to, to having a baby. Hmm. It's great just to learn about that diversity. There's so much diversity within the medical field and even within each department. Yeah, um, and I will say too, within the, the nursing staff, you know, within the anesthesia, there's multiple different ways to get there. Um, folks can go into nursing and then they usually do a critical care experience, I believe two years or so, and then they can go into um, to nurse anesthesia school, be a nurse anesthetist. And then there's also anesthesiologist assistants. So there's a lot of different ways to get into the field of anesthesiology that are, that are not just physicians too. In your career and as you were deciding your path, is there a specific area that uh, you gravitated towards within all of those specialties? Yeah, I definitely loved pediatric anesthesiology when I was in residency and cardiac anesthesia. And probably the thing that I enjoyed the most was regional anesthesia. And what that is, is ultimately where you do um, peripheral nerve blocks, either through single shots or catheters to alleviate both intra-op pain and post-operative pain. And um, mm. I thought that was just a perfect meld of my osteopathic um, medicine training 
because there was a lot of form and function in it, anatomy in terms of what the anatomy, how is it designed, how is it laid out, and then what's the form and function for that. And there was a massive emphasis on anatomy in our osteopathic curriculum <clears throat> that really went hand in hand with um, doing regional anesthesia, and that's probably my favorite. Hmm. That's great. Mm -hmm. You know, we've touched on it a little bit, but there's a lot of collaboration within the field of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, there's the nurse anesthetist, there's the anesthesiologist, there's the surgeons, and mm -hmm. you know each patient might encounter a nurse, and then the anesthesiologist, and then the surgeon, and then a PACU nurse, and then maybe a PT or a rehab specialist afterwards. So there's so many people involved throughout their day and, and throughout the course of that surgery. Could you talk a little bit about within collaboration within the medical field, how do you stimulate a healthy doctor-patient relationship um, between doctors to patients and then also doctors to doctors? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just having that mutual respect for mm -hmm. people. Um, I don't care what station of life anybody's in or what role they fill, they fill a very important role. Mm -hmm. And a patient really comes in contact with, just like you described, all of those folks, whether that's coming through the door with the, the ultimately the folks in the pre-op area to the pre-op nurse, to the OR nurses, to the surgeons, to the residents that are with the surgery or the, with the anesthesiologists or the CRNAs. And the way I really foster that is that I try to really get to know people. Um, mm. And the way I do that is ultimately have, you know, off the cuff conversations when time allows with folks and develop a relationship with them because I think that's really important for establishing uh, collaboration is you know you're going to have a lot more ability to speak into somebody's life or to actually have a honest conversation about um, different um, decisions in terms of management of a patient or treatment options that may be different than somebody else would if you know that person and you have that mm -hmm. relationship and you may work with them on a daily basis. So the way I foster it is just a mutual respect, trying to get to know the people around me and making sure that they're validated. I think that's really important is that <clears throat> when people do good work and they provide excellent care, they need to know about that. Um, and that's, that's a really important. That's great. You know, I've been reading a book, I think it's called The Human Side of Medicine, and it just talks about how as a medical professional, you have that opportunity to be a key part in their, their medical drama, their medical story. Everyone has a story from the moment they walk through the doors to the moment they come out. So it's really neat to hear that you're prioritizing just that patient relationship and how patients aren't just um, another number or another record in Epic, but they're, they're people with these stories and how it's very beneficial to take the time to get to know them and to really to calm them and, and bring that calming presence. Surgery is a vulnerable thing. Maybe mm -hmm. it's their first time having surgery. Maybe they don't fully know the whole process. Um, and sometimes you are the one to see the patient right before they head back to surgery. How do you try to bring peace, comfort, or support to that patient and just put them in a good frame of mind for the surgery coming up? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll be honest, peace doesn't come from me. Um, I feel like peace can only be given from above. Mm. Um, I get my peace from my Heavenly Father and, and Jesus Christ. And 
just having that internal peace in myself by knowing that he is in control and that he guides my hands and he's the great physician brings me the greatest peace. And the way that I can sort of let people know that is just by being there and being real and being honest and answering any questions in a very humble fashion, <clears throat> answering any of the family's questions and, and honestly just being totally available. I will ask patients um, if they feel respected, if they are <clears throat> okay, if we pray together at times. Um, and I've had so many experiences that honestly I've been touched more than the patients have at times. And it's, it's just because of the peace that transcends all understanding is not from me, it's from above. But me as a person, I, I've always had that empathy and that compassion since I was a boy to be able to listen and hear patients and to be able to really address concerns in a way that I feel is respectful, mm -hmm. is kind, and um, is is able to get the, uh, the the family involved too that way. And I think, you know, I think that's not something that I was necessarily trained to do at times. I think empathy right. is something that you have or you don't, and you choose to use it or you don't. And some people are better, some people aren't. And um, it's just something that you have to exercise hmm. and, and get comfortable with. It's a beautiful perspective just to, to bring have that empathy and to, to bring that support and the patient enters the OR uh, with trust in you and, and with trust for that process and then as soon as they go under anesthesia you know mm -hmm. everyone in the OR room is working in concert it's, mm -hmm. it's like a, a beautiful orchestrated dance That's um, right. and there's you must know your job well and you have to do your job well you're not in charge of everything but you have to realize what specifically your jobs are and your tasks are. Um, could you talk a little bit about just that collaboration even within the OR? Just what is your job and, and what do you try to do in that situation just as everyone's working together? Yeah, I think um, a big part of it is kind of knowing where the boat's going. So, right. you know, with anesthesia, it's, it's somewhat laid out in the fact that, you know, you have to go to sleep you know you have to secure an airway, you know you have to treat pain, hemodynamics, and then you have to kind of go the opposite way and then start working on getting the patient woken up, take them to PACU. So there's, a, there's very much a symphony with anesthesia in terms of how that works. Some people even describe it similar to airline pilots that take off and the, the, the landing, you know? And, right, uh, right. Some people will say there's a whole lot of boredom in between. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say there is there is so much mental power and efforts going into what an anesthesiologist does on a daily basis between that um, takeoff and that landing because um, there's so many factors there's so many comorbid conditions there's so much pharmacology that you have to know to be able to make that symphony something that sounds like Beethoven and not my three-year-olds <laughs> banging on a drum right so that's right a, that's a hard balance to do and honestly when you see an anesthesiologist at work you're like wow this is incredibly boring and, and what <laughs> you like realize is after the fact is like when you're actually doing it there's so much that's actually happening that you don't even realize 
that you're doing. And hmm. that's part of the residency training. I remember when I came home from my CA one year, you know, doing anesthesia, learning it for the first time, you'd be exhausted because there's so many of your faculties that you're using that you didn't even know you were using. Right. To be right. able to monitor safely a patient, to be able to think about the things that are coming around the bend that you can't see, but you have to plan for. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's the important thing in terms of what the anesthesiologist does. In terms of the collaboration with the operating room, yeah, I think everybody has to know their role. It's just like a good team. Right. You know, right. you may not be the point guard that's calling the plays and getting the ball down the floor. Um, you may be the shooting guard. So you may be that OR nurse that has to get the patient in the room, get them comfortable, help out and assist in any way, and also help out and assist the nurse. Or you may be that surgical tech that has to get all the instruments counted and correct. So everybody has to know exactly what their function is in order for the patient to have not only the best experience, but the safest experience. And I'm just a part of that too in the mm. operating room. Mm. It's beautiful trying to create that symphony within the OR. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I want to delve just a little bit deeper into the surgery from anesthesia perspective. When we think of anesthesia, we might just think of a single induction agent or sedative medication, but within anesthesia, there's a lot of diversity even within the medicine. Mm -hmm. um, just like a, a brief overview, could you just kind of describe maybe a little bit about the different types of drugs that you might Absolutely. use? Yeah, so the way I kind of describe it is I use it as kind of like the Chinese buffet of medicine. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get your plate full of tasty food. But there's also a lot of different things that you can put on that plate. So I always kind of like the example of I got my hypnotic meats, so that's Atomidate, Propofol, any type of benzodiazepines, ketamine. There's a lot of different drugs that you can use to have somebody forget something and right. to be asleep. You right. know, there's, a, there's a lot that way. And then I think of you know my analgesic um, vegetables. So whether you're a broccoli guy, whether you're a cabbage guy, you could be a fentanyl, sufenta, you could be... Um, um, Remy fentanyl, you could be dilated. there's a whole host, morphine, there's a whole host of narcotics that ultimately can get to the same spot, you just have to know how the dosing works, the pharmacology, which one's used in the best situation. And then you get to your rices, and then you're thinking of, you know, your antiemetics, or um, you get to some of your other things, like maybe your um, fortune cookie, which can be... Um, some of your medications that you would use for <clears throat> maintenance of anesthesia, like that sevoflurane, desflurane, all the inhaled anesthetics, or you could do a TIVA, which is a total intravenous anesthetic, that you run basically a hypnotic through an IV, a peripheral IV. So nice. the way I kind of think of it is there's no perfect way to do it, um, but there is a lot of nuance with each one of those major selections of your Chinese food smorgasbord. <laughs> and you kind of have to know those nuances to get a plate that's going to be well-balanced. Um, and that's kind of the way I describe it to folks. It can be overwhelming just to see that list, but realizing that each drug is trying to accomplish a specific type of thing for the surgery. Right. From like muscle relaxants to, we don't think much of it, but you don't remember the surgery and there's those specific drugs for that too, which, sure. is, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, taking a step back, um, when you think of anesthesia, what do you see in the next few years that excites you within that world? 
Yeah, I think there's um, so much that on the research side of anesthesia, it always really, really fascinates me about how people go to sleep and what actually is happening in the brain. Mm. I think that's such a fascinating, fascinating thing. And to date, you know, nobody can actually put their finger on how inhaled anesthetics work. There's a lot of theories, but there's never been a tried and true, this is exactly how it works, which always fascinates me incredibly. Right. There's a lot of different theories, like I said, about how those things actually work. But until we get to the point where we actually know how does an anesthetic agent like a hypnotic put you to sleep, then we can target and find other drug therapies to do that hmm. that are different and that have different capabilities in terms of their pharmacological profiles. I think that is such a fascinating science. The other one is pain. I think in this, the the realm of pain management, there is so much that comes out in terms of how a pain signal is generated in the periphery, how it goes to the spinal cord, how is it interpreted in the brain and back and forth. And there is so much in the, the, the research world um, and so much in technology in terms of how people are being treated for pain procedures, which as a regional anesthesiologist is really, really fascinating to me how we can do that. The other thing I always really like is just with the advent of ultrasound, it was really kind of, you know, practice changing within the last 20 years of uh, medicine and anesthesia specifically. And I'm excited to see what other type of imaging modalities we come up with over the next 20 to 30 years. I think it's going to be, be incredible that way. It's so encouraging just even thinking of like the progression of anesthesia so far and it's cool to see how there's that ongoing research and how we're just continuing to look at new ways and, and better ways and more efficient ways. So Absolutely. really cool to dive into that a little bit. We've talked about it a little bit before, but an anesthesiologist takes on many roles within that daily drama of hospital life. Could you walk us through a little bit of an overview of a typical week in your life? Yeah, absolutely. I love my job, and the reason why is because there's so much variety to it. Um, I really pride myself on being able to take care of a lot of different patients. Mm. And um, any day could be totally different. Um, on any given day, I'd start typically around 6.30 in the morning. At that point, I would go into the pre-op area and see whatever patients I have. If that's in the operating room setting or at the, the main um, Good Sam campus, that can be a whole host of different procedures, whether from general surgery to vascular surgery um, to GYN surgery to major robotic surgery um, to any even intracranial and uh, major back surgery and orthopedic surgery. So it could be a wow. whole host of patients <laughs> yeah. at any given day. And with that, you know, when you're seeing a patient preoperatively, you're thinking about all the things that the patient has. You're thinking about all the things that we're going to do to them from a surgical standpoint, all the while all the things that we're doing from an anesthesia standpoint in terms of the pharmacology, in terms of the management of pain, in terms of making sure they're not sick to their stomach when they wake up, and how we're going to keep them sleep but also keep them totally safe. And you see how that melds together and see what I can do as an anesthesiologist to head off at the past things that I know are coming down and then also be able to look at the comorbid conditions that are what are going to set this patient up to have problems with something that I can't foresee. Hmm. And that's really kind of the art of being an anesthesiologist is triaging patients, being able to manage them intraoperatively through procedures and uh, being able to see how all their comorbid conditions really fit 
in terms of their management. Hmm. Um, so that's that's typically what we'll do in the pre-op setting. And then once we've done that, we've come up with a plan. We discuss that with the folks that we're working with, whether that's a CRNA or an AA. And then we go back to the operating room. We get the patient off to sleep. Um, the surgery starts, hopefully uneventfully, and um, you're well on your way. And you're doing that with several rooms with multiple patients on a daily basis. And throughout the day, you're doing the same thing, seeing patients preoperatively, making sure they're getting to sleep, making sure they're waking up. And then after surgery, you're reevaluating the patient to make sure that they don't have some of those things that are typically very common with anesthesia after surgery um, or surgery in general, which is making sure their pain's controlled, making sure that they can do all the activities of daily function, um, and then also making sure that they don't have a lot of nausea and those sorts of things. Um, so that's typically what a day in the hospital look like. Day mostly gets done around three to four, sometimes five. And then the next day potentially could be at an ambulatory center, and that's where you're mm. really t taking care of patients that are usually are otherwise healthy, and really the emphasis is on getting them through a procedure that typically can be done in a setting that's more efficient, and they can go home the same day pretty quickly. So it's a little different set of circumstances where you want to then meld your anesthetic techniques to help the patient be optimized during surgery and after surgery, but all the while be able to get home in an efficient manner. And right. that's, that's its, an art in and of itself. Um, and then the next day could potentially be at uh, up on the OB unit, and you're taking care of ladies that are pregnant. That can be anywhere from viable pregnancies to non-viable pregnancies, and you're trying to treat their pain throughout their labor process or get them ready for C-sections, whether that's elective or emergent C-sections, and managing all the other comorbid conditions that come with pregnancy. Um, and doing a whole host of procedures, whether that's some dilation and curatages um, for missed abortions, um, or if you're doing any type of um, cerclage types of procedures where they'll actually make the, the, um, the cervix a lot smaller. So if people have cervical shortening and they have troubles with getting pregnant or having pregnancy issues with that, that, the, um, that they can actually do that. And there's a whole host of things that go into all of these, and I don't want to minimize any of them, but I'm just kind of going through what every day could be right, totally right. different. And then the next day potentially could be a cardiac case, you know, where you're doing an open heart procedure, going on cardiopulmonary bypass that requires anticoagulation, that requires a lot of hemodynamic monitoring, potentially inotropes, things that, medications that make the heart um, actually function uh, optimally and uh, doing various different procedures like arterial lines, central lines, um, echo, cardiography, where you're actually taking a picture of the heart from the backside in the esophagus, and you're actually taking a look in a live image at almost a 3D structure in a 2D film. Fascinating. It's so fascinating, yeah. and it's, it's almost like a reconstruction of the heart in your mind in a 2D image, and the, the imaging modalities have just like, it's, just blown up and blossomed here recently. The echo, you can do now 3D imaging pretty easily, and you can really get a sense of what's going on in a heart, um, which is it's just incredibly fascinating. And then the last day, I could be at an orthopedic surgery center doing nerve blocks all day long, which is ultimately where I, as an anesthesiologist, will use a couple different modalities to find a specific nerve that's going to a specific part that a surgeon wants to work on, and I'll actually anesthetize those nerves with local anesthesia and make them totally numb in a specific body part. And that could be totally different from all the other things that I do on a daily basis. But 
just walking through that five days in a hospital, you know, you've covered a gamut of surgical <laughs> procedures and the age ranges are the same. You could take care of a 90-year-old one day and take care of a six-year-old the following day. You know, it's <laughs> just a... It's, it's a wide variety of the things we do, and no day, no day is the same. What is one thing important to you outside of the walls of the OR? When you're mm-hmm. not in the hospital, what's, what's a passion you have? What's a, <laughs> what's a love you have outside of medicine? Yeah, I love my, my wife and my kids. I mean, I just find so much, so much love from them. I have five children and my beautiful wife. We've been married for 14 years. Um, they're really the ones that fill my cup mm. and uh, make me who I am. And it's just, uh, it's so it's so wonderful to come home and to be able to hang out with my children and see just their bright faces and just the things that they're excited about. And that really makes me excited about that. Um, some things I like to do in my free time, I love to play sports. Um, I was always an avid basketball and soccer player growing <laughs> up and don't get that much time to do those things now. But uh, anytime I do, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. And then I love to play guitar as well and, and uh, participate in my, my local church. Hmm. So. That's great. I know we've, we've talked about the surgery room. We've talked about the specifics within the OR and mm-hmm. the patient. Uh, touched on some of the pharmacology involved in there. Now just taking a step back, um, just a, a wide-angle lens at the world within anesthesia, I know you talked about the techniques within anesthesia to target specific areas. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on that you believe is just a pressing issue within the world of anesthesia today? <clears throat> yeah, I think as, as our populations begin to age and um, as we start to get to the point where we have longer durations of life, I think towards the end of life you start to get comorbid conditions that can be particularly difficult for an anesthesiologist to manage at times. Um, so I think that's always a pressing need as our population starts to age and you have a lot of comorbid conditions that are um, ultimately being bypassed because really the shock troops of the medical field are really your family practice docs, family practice, pediatricians, internal med. And what they do is they really try to manage comorbid conditions to keep you out of sort of that spiral of requiring surgery or identifying things early so that you can address them before they become catastrophic problems. Unfortunately, as we've um, come through COVID and everything like that, we've, we've really developed into um, a primary care force that ultimately is you know, in quick clinics where they fit people's needs, and they fit definitely a, a need for sure, but there's not that continuity of care that you necessarily should see in terms of like managing a patient over time to try to keep some of these comorbid conditions at bay. So I foresee that being a problem for sure as, um, as obesity becomes a problem, as our, we begin to age, you start to develop a lot of issues with anesthesia later in life. Um, some of the things in terms of the billing of anesthesia and how we actually get paid as physicians are sometimes always a little um, things that you can kind of see in the future that may be pressing problems. And that's where, you know, not necessarily um, the way that we get paid in medicine is dictated by the quality of what we do, but on um, certain payment methods that you don't get necessarily financed as well. Mm. And that can, what that can do is ultimately have downstream effects in terms of your recruitment of people going into medicine. It's a massive time, personal commitment to go to medical school, to go to residency, to devote your life to that. 
And um, you, you really have to have some of the downstream benefits in order to help recruit those folks. Um, and some of, if those aren't there, then that, that can be a particular problem to, to really kind of recruit, to be honest with you. Hmm. It's really helpful just to, to see where some of those problems might be heading uh, within the world of anesthesia. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What is some of the input that you've received along the way that has proven helpful? Yeah, the two I would say is trust your gut and uh, stay true to yourself. Right. Um, trust your gut. I'll be honest, you know, even through all those big decisions of, oh, should I go to medical school? Oh, should I do anesthesia? Or should I do this residency program? You know, there's a lot of questions and things that you think are very career forming, and they are throughout training. But I found that if I just trusted my gut and my faith, honestly, um, then I couldn't go wrong. Hmm. It was, I feel like there is a natural tendency for you to know what the right decision is, and there's a lot of voices talking to you, but if you just trust your gut, I think that's, that's something that's really important. And I feel like that's the exact same sometimes even in the operating room, you know, when there's a certain problem that you're like, I'm not sure if that's what it is, um, but if you think about it, definitely treat it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, definitely do something about it or at least explore it more, and um, I think that's, that's some, a really good piece of advice the other one stay true to yourself you know you know who you are hmm. deep down inside you know what you care about you know the things that are going to make you whole and if you go outside of that you're not going to be content and the people that are going to suffer are those that you love most around you and your patients so if you stay true to yourself you're going to find the right path that way I know it can be uh, very detrimental when you start to compare when you start to look at Absolutely. others uh, within the medical field. Um, could you talk just a little bit about um, that concept, like yeah. growing um, up and then in medical school and, and through residency, um, did you feel that tendency to compare or, or how mm -hmm. did you kind of deal with that along yeah, the, the journey? That's a great question. I feel like medical school um, and even undergrad at times, you know, if you're in a very high performing place, you know, can be very much that way. I think we as humans have a tendency to look next door you know whether you're competitive or not or anything like that you're always going to kind of be comparing yourself to somebody else good bad or indifferent and in medical school I feel like there's a big collection of that because at the end of medical school you know that there's either a and well halfway through and at the end of your medical school you have massive board exams that can determine what you can actually do in medicine so it really is advantageous and important for you to do your best and um, to put your best foot forward but you can kind of get lost in that, you know, mm -hmm. when it's all about you and it's introspection, you know, you lose that humility, you use that perspective that it is your one life to have an effect. Hmm. And that effect really is not my own, but it's for people that I haven't even met yet and people that I haven't even cared for and people that that need me in that moment. And I, I don't know if I really recognize that in medical school. I'll tell you the thing that really kind of helped me build perspective was when we had our firstborn, Levi Michael, in my second year of medical school. And just seeing him as an infant with such beautiful eyes and just knowing that I was a father and I had my beautiful wife and now we're parents, it really changed my perspective of, you know, this is not about what I want. This is the choice that that I've made and the reason I made that choice was from the history that was described before that I feel like was built inside me hmm. to care for people but once I held my 
my firstborn in my hands and um, I just had a totally different perspective of what this medicine journey was doing to me. And I think having children during medical school, even though it was trying at times and difficult to get through, it gave me such a perspective that it's not about me. Hmm. And it's really about those that I care about and um, the patients that I'm going to be, be taken care of. And uh, it is. It's very easy in medical school to be downtrodden, to be beat up. And I think that resiliency is built within medical school and um, trying to jump over the next hurdle, jump over the next hoop, Mm -hmm. and to do your best, all the while trying to keep that perspective that this is for a greater good that's bigger than yourself. Hmm. A lot of times it's for those patients that you haven't even met yet, and it's providing that care and that comfort to to those people. And it's really a sacrifice of love, everything that you've described of all of that education, all of that Mm -hmm. investment, all of that time that you put in and energy, um, it's a direct output then to a patient's success on surgery day or within the hospital. Absolutely. Just a beautiful vision. So. Yeah, and it comes full circle. That sure does. Yeah, yeah. Really appreciate your time and just thank you again for, for coming on. So. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's been such a pleasure and I'm so excited for this podcast and what it's gonna do for folks. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Voices from Healthcare. This podcast seeks to give practical advice to aspiring healthcare professionals and encourage those within the healthcare field. If you appreciate the message and mission of this podcast, leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to, and make sure to follow the podcast so that you do not miss out on future episodes. It really does help spread the word within the podcasting world. Tune in on November 22nd as I connect with a surgical technician specializing in pediatrics at a hospital within the Boston area. I will gain a first-hand perspective into the world of surgical technology. We will touch on the types of surgeries she is involved in, the education needed in order to be a surgical technician, and the powerful perspective she brings as a young black woman to the world of medicine. We will touch on the sequence of surgery the importance of wellness within healthcare, and stimulating a healthy relationship between the old and young within the medical field. Feel free to send me professions you want me to interview, questions you have, or any stories you want to share with me. You can email me at voicesfromhealthcare at gmail.com. You can also check out the podcast Instagram page at voicesfromhc. Here I'll post important updates about season launches, episode information, and more. Although this podcast seeks to be informative, information discussed cannot be taken in place of medical advice.